Uh, if you guys have uh, uh, your programs or if you have prefer to use your Bibles or an app, we're going to be looking at a couple passages to go through today's message. Uh, we're going to be looking at three short passages today, three short passages. And it's going to be 1 Peter, John chapter 8, and John chapter 8 again. So 1 Peter chapter 5, it's going to be in your programs. It's not on the screen, so you can feel free to use your Bibles if you have that too. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, and we'll look at two more verses. So in 1 Peter, it writes, starting in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your, bro- by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then in John chapter 8, verse 44 to 45. You are of your, your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. And lastly, in verse 31 and 32, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is the reading of God's word. So last week we began a new six-part series that we called Form, The Reshaping of Life. A lot of it is inspired by this book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And the argument that we gave to introduce this series last week is that all of us, whether we know it or not, we are being spiritually formed. Something is forming us. Something is shaping us. The only thing is that we have a choice on how we can be spiritually formed. And I showed these two charts up there last week. One way you could be formed is you could be unintentionally formed. Because all of us, we are believing in stories. We practice habits. And we are in relationships in this environment called the OC. Or we can choose to be intentionally formed, which is we embrace Jesus' teachings, we embrace his practices, we embrace his community, and it's through the environment of the Holy Spirit. To be unintentionally formed, all you have to do is wake up tomorrow. All you got to do is wake up on a Monday morning and you will be unintentionally formed. But as God's people, we are called to be transformed, and that takes a lot of intentionality. Now, I don't know about you, but last week, if you heard a message, that message and, you know, the idea of being intentional, um, we kind of now know what to do, right? We go, okay, that makes sense. It's logical. Uh, I want to do that, but (sighs) Monday, come Monday, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. I'm not sure if anyone's week really changed from last week. Maybe you tried or maybe you tried to take steps or in the midst of it, you just got really tired or discouraged, and I get it. You know, I hear this all the time from people when they hear, you know, I got to hear, I believe in these stories in the world, but I got to believe in Jesus' teaching, so I should read my Bible every day. And when I talk to them later, they go, hey, how'd that go? They go, I tried, but it's tough. It's just so tough. Or I know I should connect with the community. You know, Sundays are not enough. I want to know people. I know know you guys, this church has a thing called community groups. I want to come and connect with a community group, but I'm so unmotivated. When the day came to visit one, I just couldn't do it. Or for some of us, you know, I just know I should be intentional. I should do a schedule. I should lay it out. I should lay out what I want to do this whole week. But I'm tired. I'm really tired. Why is it like that? Why does it feel like a battle every single day just to stay faithful? Why does it feel so hard to follow Jesus? And let me give you a very profound answer why. Because it is hard. It's hard. And what surprises us about that is the fact that we live in the OC. You know, in Orange County, we are 
we are told and informed that everything should be easy. Life should be easy according to the OC. Convenience is the name of the game living here. And so to experience something hard, it's, very, it's in contrast to everything else in life. And yet, the life of faith is supposed to be hard. It's actually called a battle all the time, which is very strange to us because when we think of Jesus, when we think of the church, when we think of the Christian faith, we often almost see it like taking a yoga class. It's something we do once a week, and we either do it or we don't, and that's kind of it. Just something we do every once in a while. But you know, Jesus' followers, when they describe, if you want to be a Christian, you know what you should expect? Not a yoga class. Expect war. It's going to be war. Throughout the Bible, it mentions this. Fight the good fight of faith, Paul tells Timothy. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God if you're a Christian. And Paul tells the Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare aren't against flesh. It's like, whoa, there's a lot of battle language that Jesus uses for Christians. And this war language, maybe it sounds kind of weird to us, the idea of fighting because, you know, we think of Christians as being pacifists who are nonviolent or the founder of the Christian faith, Jesus, didn't he not battle his enemies? Didn't he die for his enemies? So what's with all this war language? And it's very important to get clear that as Christians, we are in a battle, we're in a war, but it's not with people, it's not with ethnic groups, it's not with nations, it's not with the liberals, it's not with the conservatives. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. In other words, our war, it's a spiritual war. And there is an enemy that is working against our spiritual formation. And that's why it's so hard to be spiritually formed. There are three enemies that the Bible and the church consistently talks about that will stop you from wanting to be formed the way Jesus wants you to be formed. Historically, they are called the unholy trinity, and here are the three. The devil, the flesh, the world. The devil, the flesh, the world. These are the three enemies of the soul that are consistently brought up as warnings to believers, as warnings to God's people. And they are working against the Christian to be formed the way God wants them to be formed. And these are the ways that they attack the soul. The devil brings deceptive lies to, his, to the people. Our flesh has disordered desires to want to believe that. And then, this is normalized by society. It seems normal to do this. And that's why it's so hard to practice intentional formation. It's not neutral ground that we are in. We have three enemies constantly working against us. And here's the bigger problem. Not only are there three enemies working against us, for us, we don't even know who these enemies are. We're not even familiar with them. In fact, we disregard them quite quickly. When you are warned about the devil, we can't help but smirk. We can't help but have memories of our youth group days going, I remember my youth pastor warned me about the devil. And we just kind of roll our, our, our eyes thinking, yeah, you know, I guess he's out there somewhere. When we're warned about the flesh, we don't even know what that means. What do you mean the flesh? We don't have a category in the modern terms for that word. For that word. And when we're warned about the world, we can't help but imagine an angry street preacher with a megaphone denouncing us who listen to pop music. So we think that's the world. 
And so while we are quick to denounce it, and it's pretty easy to roll our eyes against such warnings, what really makes it difficult, though, has been how do we make sense of our spiritual struggle? And yet why do we find ourselves having a difficult time trying to try? And why, why does the New Testament constantly warn us about these three enemies? Perhaps, perhaps Jesus and his followers, they recognize a spiritual battle that all of us tend to be blind in, and we, in order to win this battle, we need to recognize we're in a battle. We need to recognize that this is something that's deeper than what we see. So for the rest of this series, what we're going to do is we're going to examine this battle together. We're going to examine the war by looking at the enemies of our souls. We want to learn about who these people are, how to fight this battle, how can we be spiritually formed. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first and probably the most dismissed enemy of the soul in the modern world, which is the devil. We're going to talk about the devil a lot today and next week. So tune in. The three passages that we, we have looked at, we're going to look at, learn three things about the devil. Number one, we're going to look at the reality of the devil. Is the devil real? Let's talk about that. Second is the attacks of the devil. How does the devil attack if attacks us if he's real? And then lastly, the fight against the devil. If he's real and he attacks, how can we resist him? How can we fight him? So first and foremost, the reality of the devil. My family and I, a few years ago, we moved to uh, the neighborhood that we live in right now. And we first moved into that neighborhood. We got out of the car and we were greeted by our neighbors going, welcome to the neighborhood. Are you moving in? And we go, yes, we are. And they're like, this is a great neighborhood. There's a lot of great friendly neighbors. There's a pool area right there. It's really peaceful and calm. Just one thing you have to watch out for, the coyotes. There are coyotes all over this neighborhood. And these coyotes are big. We see you have young kids running around. A few years ago, they bit a kid, so you got to watch out for that. When we heard that, what did my wife and I do? We sometimes were mindful of the coyotes because we'd walk out, and when we had young kids, we'd just look out, no coyote. If sometimes our, our friends bring a dog, we tell them, hey, there's coyotes here. Don't let them loose. So we were mindful of the coyotes because they warned us about these coyotes because, again, we don't want our dogs to get snatched. We don't want our kids to get bit. But imagine... Imagine our neighbors, they said, no, there's not just coyotes here, but also watch out for the lions. There are lions roaming around this neighborhood. You know what would happen? We wouldn't just watch out sometimes, we'd watch out all the time. Because while coyotes could bite our kids and eat our dogs, lions could bite us and eat us. And so we'd always be on, on the lookout for lions if that was the warning that was given to us. First Peter chapter 5. Peter warns readers and Christians saying, you have to watch out for something. And it's as dangerous as a lion, as dangerous as a roaring lion. In verse 8, look what he says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The word devil, it literally means slanderer or accuser. It is one of many names the Bible gives to the devil. He is also called the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the serpent, the great dragon, all talking about the same person. The Bible does not give details about his origin. We just know that he is not God's rival, where it's good versus evil in this way, but he is a created being. We know the devil is a spiritual creature, and we know that the devil, he aims to destroy God's work. And what Peter is saying is that if you are a Christian and you journey this Christian life, there's a devil out there. He's looking to eat you, so pay attention. Watch out. Now, as you hear that warning, Christian, how do you feel? Are you like, oh, my 
gosh, I never knew this. I better watch out. Are you going to react in a way where you're going to now be on the lookout for the devil? Are you going to change your behavior? Are you going to modify your behavior at all? Some of you, if you're the more like paranoid type, you might think, oh my gosh, I better watch out. And you're just now praying a lot because the devil's out there. But a lot of you, you might be like, eh, what's for lunch today? What's for lunch? You know why we do that? C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the book, The Screwtape Letters, he says, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician in the same delight. What is Lewis saying here? Lewis is saying there are two ways you can respond to the idea of the devil, and both are grave errors. The first way is what, he calls, what someone calls a superstitious view, which is the devil is everywhere. You see the devil behind every single problem. He's everywhere. You're preoccupied about him. And when we think of people like that, we think of historically ancient world, Salem witch trials, they saw the devil everywhere, which might have just been diseases, but like, that's the devil. And so there's a superstitious view where everyone sees the devil everywhere. So that's one error. But there's another error, which we call the substitious view. You're not superstitious, you're substitious, meaning you don't see the devil everywhere. He's nowhere. He's nowhere. As modern people, we are not preoccupied with the devil. He never occupies our mind because we're rational people. That feels so superstitious. The devil, like, you believe in that? Do you have a master's degree? Really? Like, you really think there's a devil out there? As modern people, we enjoy watching movies about the devil. We enjoy hearing stories about the devil. But the reality of the devil in our lives, oh, there's a lot of problems that we have with that. How could anyone believe in the devil? Just know, as someone who t tries to think rationally myself, I empathize with anyone who has a hard time heeding Peter's warning. I have a lot of problems or questions with the devil too, but here's something I concluded. Uh, as much problems as there might be to believing in the devil, you face bigger problems if you don't believe in the devil. You face bigger problems. Let me name a couple of them. First problem is this. If you don't believe in the devil, you're going to have a really hard time following Jesus because Jesus believes in the devil. Jesus Christ, he fully believes in the devil. Not just on the sermon, but just all of life. When the, the disciples went on a mission trip and they came back going, we converted all these people to Christianity. You know what Jesus said? He didn't go, good job, guys. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall. Whoa, we didn't bring up Satan. Why do you bring up the devil? Another time when Jesus is telling a story, he goes, you know why some people don't believe in God's word? Why some people aren't Christians? Because the devil takes away the word. Whoa, okay, Jesus. And later when Peter, he rebukes Jesus going, hey, don't do that. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Whoa, Jesus talks about the devil a lot. What's going on? In fact, Jesus just talked the devil a lot. His whole worldview, you cannot describe it without the devil. He calls the devil the mo three times the prince of the world. He is the prince of the world. That word, word prince in the Greek, it refers to the highest ranking Roman soldier. So what Peter is saying, oh, I'm sorry, what Jesus is saying when he calls the devil the prince of the world, he's saying the devil is the most powerful creature in the world. That's Jesus' worldview. 
And he never once tried to convince people that the devil exists. Jesus just presumes the devil exists. As one author says, quote, every facet of Jesus' life was dominated by his belief in the reality of demonic forces. Whether or not it makes sense or is embarrassing for contemporary thought, it is entirely beside the point. If you want to believe in Jesus, if you want to believe in his teachings, you have to know Jesus' people really believes in the devil. Here's the second problem if you don't believe in the devil. Not only do you have a problem following Jesus, you're going to have a problem explaining evil. How does evil work? I know we tend to think when Christians believe there's a devil, so simplistic, so reductionistic. How could you believe in something like that? We're sophisticated in our view of life. Is it really simplistic to believe in the devil? Because let's pause and ask this question. What causes somebody to do evil? What makes somebody evil? If you ask a biologist, what they'll say is this. And I'm being very simplistic, but this is you. What makes you do something evil? If you just believe in the material world, you just believe in biology, you go, oh, you know what it is? It's this. It's your body. It's your mind. Something genetic about you. So you know how we get rid of evil in this world? We need better medicine. We need to have better education because it's all your mind and your body. That's what's influencing you to do evil. Really, we just need medicine and all the evil will go away. And so the psychologist is like, no, no, no. It's not your body or genetic only. What we have to pay attention to is actually our family, our culture. How are you raised? Where do you live? That influences you to become evil. So how do we fix evil? You see a therapist. You see counseling. We make sure that you explore your past. Really? That is the way we're going to fix evil in the world? And then you talk to the churchy people. They go, no, no, no. You know what it is? What causes us to do evil? It's the devil. The devil and the spiritual world. That's what causes us to do evil. So how do we get rid of evil? We just pray. We just pray. And what I would argue is all three of those, it's just internal, it's just external, it's just spiritual, way too simple because the solutions are way too simple. But for Christians, it is this holistic view of what causes someone to be evil, where it is your body, your mind, internal, it is your culture, your family, external, but it's also spiritual, where there's someone out there that is working through evil. So far from being the simplistic view of evil, I would argue Jesus and the New Testament were way more nuanced about the evilness of the human heart. Evil becomes far too simple without the devil. Lastly, if you don't believe in the devil, you will not only have the problem of following Jesus or explaining evil, you have a problem loving people. Isn't that strange? What do I mean by that? Here's the argument. If you don't have a devil in your worldview, you will end up demonizing people. Who are you going to hate for the hatred in this world? Who are you going to blame for the evil in this world? Pastor John Tyson, he says it like this, quote, A culture that has removed the supernatural from its thinking will not do away with the concepts of the supernatural. It will transfer them to the natural. Without acknowledging actual fallen angels and enemies of God, we turn others into fallen members of our desired social conditions and enemies of ourselves. And he continues, Christians with a Satanless gospel will project the anger that should be reserved for Lucifer onto other social groups, ignoring the Apostle Paul's reminder that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In other words, in a culture like ours that perhaps 
the least culture that believes in demons. We are the least likely to believe in the existence of the devil. Aren't we demonizing a lot of people today? Aren't we demonizing a lot of groups today? We have a lot of problem. We have a problem. So why does this matter? Why does it matter the devil is real? What should be our takeaway? For anyone who is here, skeptical, skeptical about Christianity, exploring Christianity, I'm pretty sure you walk in and you hear what Jesus says about love and forgiveness, and you think, I like that. That sounds pretty good. But anything about miracles or spirits, or especially the devil, sounds pretty wonky, right? It sounds wonky. But what if, what if, just as Jesus, he understands love and forgiveness better than anybody else that we know is alive, what if Jesus sees this reality better than us? What if Jesus sees and understands evil more than this modern world? Because if we don't believe in the devil, we're going to have a hard time not demonizing one another. We're going to have a hard time really explaining what evil is. And you're going to especially have a hard time really beginning to follow Jesus. Because for Jesus, this was really important. Now, if you're a Christian, I feel like most of you would agree with what I said. The struggle is not believing in the reality of the devil. For Christians, the struggle is believing in the relevance of the devil. Okay, the devil exists. So what? Peter says, watch out and pay attention. We go, meh, again, what's for lunch? And you know what? Perhaps the only thing more dangerous than the devil is not believing he's dangerous. It's not believing he's dangerous. Because when we don't pay attention to the devil, it's like living in a place where we're throwing a picnic in the middle of a war, shots are being fired, and we have no idea why we're getting shot. We have no idea what's going on because we're in a battlefield. And we're confused. Why am I so anxious? I'm so anxious and I don't know why. I did all the right steps. Why am I anxious? Why am I so angry these days? I know this caused it, but why am I so angry? Why am I so depressed? I'm super depressed. What's going on? You're laying a blanket in the battlefield and you're confused of what's happening. And the result is we're just blind to this whole other dimension of evil. As the great theologian Kaiser Sose says in the movie, The Usual Suspects, nobody believed the devil was real. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And so let's consider, if the devil is real, though, what should we do? How should we pay attention to him? How should we watch out? In other words, how does the devil attack us? And that leads to the second point, the attacks of the devil. Now, when you hear that term, the devil is attacking you, spiritual warfare, that's, if you've been churched, you've heard that term before. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I tend to naturally dismiss it. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know why? At least two reasons. When I hear spiritual warfare, the devil attacks, I just kind of see it as like paranoia. I see it as Christians who are blame shifting and reading into things. So, for example, I hear this like regularly where I was on my way to church this Sunday. My wife and I, we just started fighting. Oh, it was the devil. The devil attacked us. Maybe. Or maybe it was you. It was you, bro. Or, you know, I was trying to make it to the homeless outreach event. Got a flat tire. Can you believe it? On the way to the homeless outreach event. Spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Maybe. Maybe you just got a flat tire. In other words, when I hear people use spiritual warfare in that context... I kind of dismiss it because there's another way to explain it. It's just you or it's just your tire. So that's one reason why we roll our eyes. Or another reason why we're not really 
taking it seriously, spiritual warfare, is when we think of the devil's attacks, we limit it to what we've seen in the exorcism or paranormal activity, right? The devil attacks by demon possession or by a haunted house. We don't see that anywhere, so we're good. We're good, right? And so because of that, we tend to think that we are okay. We don't pay attention to the warning. But what's really interesting is that while it's possible the devil attacks in those methods, in those ways, when Jesus gives his most in-depth explanation of who the devil is and how he works, he mentions none of that. None of that is mentioned. Look what he says in John chapter 8, verse 44 again. You, the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you catch that emphasis that's there? When Jesus talks about the devil, he repeats, he does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. In other words, the devil's primary strategy of attacking people, it's lies. It's through lies. Just like Kobe Bryant, his signature move is the fadeaway. He has other moves, but you know the fadeaway is coming. The devil's signature move is to lie to you. And so the main battle with the devil is a fight between believing the truth versus the lie. Why is this the devil's strategy? Why truth and lies? Again, I love what John Mark Comer does where he has a helpful uh, breakdown of understanding the meaning of truth and lies. What is truth? What do we mean when we say truth? Here's one definition. Truth is on the screen. Truth is reality. You're living according to the truth when you're living according to reality. So if you say, hey, I think I could fly. I could fly. And you jump off a 10-story building, what happens? You are literally hit by reality. Right? You're not living according to the truth when you do that. You're living to what's a lie. So what's a lie? Again, on the screen. It's unreality. You're living according to the lies, to lies when you're living against how reality works. And all of us, what happens is we are taking in, growing through information. There are some truths, some lies through our family, through TV shows, through teachings, through our life experience. And what happens is you form altogether these ideas, ideas. And we could describe ideas as assumptions about reality, how you presume how reality works. And when you have enough ideas that are forming in your mind, all together, they combine to become what psychologists call mental maps of reality. You now have a mental map of how to guide you in life. To explain that even further, think of, a, think of literal maps, driving maps, okay? Like if you think about how do you get home from church to home, you don't have to think about it and look on your phone going, how do I get home? You know, right? You have a map, mental map in your brain. So you leave, you take, the, you take 91 east, you go on the 57 north, you exit your Belinda, and now all of you know how I get to my house because that's the directions of my place. You just know, right? You exit because you have a mental map about how to get home. When your mental map is true, meaning that it is corresponding to reality, you will arrive at your destination in the time that you thought you will. If your mental map is off, meaning that it's not true, it does not correspond to reality, you will get lost and you will end up somewhere that you don't want to be. That's how literal mental maps work. Now, in the same way that we develop and form literal mental maps of how to get home, we develop mental maps also how to navigate life. All of life, how you spend your money, 
how you spend your time, how you go about dating, how you go about marriage, how you go about parenting. It is all being formed in you. You have these maps. You don't even know it. It's just there. And when all of these maps coalesce together, it becomes your way of navigating through reality, to navigate through life. And your hope is it's going to lead you to a destination that modern Western people see as happiness. We want to be happy. That's the ultimate goal. And when your map matches reality, your life will flourish. Your life will be good. That's if it matches. That's if it's true. Here's the problem. When we believe something that's not true, when we are filled with ideas that are false, that are lies, that don't match reality, your mental map is going to lead you to a place you don't want to go. And it's going to feel horrible. You want to know a classic example of this? American Idol. American Idol. There's some contestants on that show. They think they're amazing singers. They think that they can make it big time. Who knows how they developed that idea. Maybe they had parents who gave them false praise. Maybe they had a town where nobody else could sing except them. Who knows? But they thought that I am an amazing singer, and I'm going to make it big time as soon as somebody discovers my singing talents. And what happens? They go on American Idol. They sing in front of the judges, and wham, reality hits them. Reality shows that you were living a lie. That is not who you are. And you could deny it all you want, but at a certain point, if you keep going that way, you're going to find yourself in a destination that you do not want to be. Embarrassment, failure, despair. This is how mental maps work. This is what drives us to places that we don't want to be. And this is how the devil attacks us. This is how the devil attacks us. Deceitful ideas, believing in something that's not true, it plays into our disordered desires, the flesh, and it looks so normal to the rest of the world. It looks so normal. See, the devil's goal is not to scare you through demon possession, but if the devil is real, his goal is to deform you through lies. He wants to deform you. You hear truths every day, and you hear lies every day, and these form ideas in your life. And the devil's goal is believe in the lie more than the truth. Because while you think that's going to lead you to flourishing and happiness, the devil knows it's going to lead you to a place you don't want to be. What are the ideas that we believe in? What are the mental maps that here in the OC in our church that we tend to think will bring us happiness? We'll get more specific next week, but generally speaking, I think I know. Because I live in the OC. If you're younger, especially if you grew up in a sheltered home and you're a college student and you just were locked at home, you can only go to church, it's the only way you can have fun. Once you go to college or once you graduate college, you know what you want to do? You just want to live. You just want to enjoy life. And so you'll go out, you'll have fun, you'll save your money to purchase the next big thing, you'll drink, you'll party, casual watching porn, casual sex, and you think there's no consequences to that. And that's just kind of your life. And that's the way you approach life. Why? Because you think it feels good. And many of us grow out of that after a while. But for the few of us who do not, we realize that, you know, as I do these things, why am I becoming less happy? Why does it feel more empty? And the reason why is because you were confusing pleasure with happiness this whole time. You thought pleasure bring you lasting joy. But we know as you get older, this pleasure does not lead to happiness. So for those of us who grow out of that, what happens? What takes place? You try to live for something greater, your career, 
your work, something that's going to give you meaning, your dreams. And so you use all of your time to pour into your work, to pour into your career. And even though you know this is fast-paced, you can't keep it up, and your family, you know, there's, you have to sacrifice that, you have to sacrifice this, but you're thinking, you know, just for a little bit of time, I'm going to work until I get the next promotion, or I'm going to work until I have kids, or I'm going to work until I can purchase the house. And what that, once that happens, I will slow down. But we all know that that usually doesn't happen because it's not just you doing something, but that work is being done to you. Something's happening in your heart. Why are you so anxious all of a sudden? You're so stressed. You're so miserable, and yet it's hard to break out of that. That's why Gen Z, they are learning from our mistake. They're like, I don't want to do that. Work ain't that great. I'm just going to work as a job, not my life, because that just seems like a road to misery. But a lot of us, if you're a Gen Z, you're not, it doesn't mean you're less busy. You're even more busy. A lot of us, we still want to be busy, and we think, I'm just so busy. Okay, I want to be productive. I want to do side hobbies. I want to have a TikTok channel. I want to have a YouTube channel. I want to do these side hustles that are there. That brings me meaning that's there. And so we're just busy with all these side projects. And so when it comes time to, hey, how are you doing spiritually? You want to grow? I don't have time. I don't have time. Lie. Lie, 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 because I know what we do. How are you watching all those Netflix shows? How are you caught up? How are you caught up to Cobra Kai? How are you caught up to the book of Boba Fett? How are you caught up to the Korean dramas? Because you have time. Check your phone. How often are you on your phone? Your phone tells you. It, it, is, a, uh, uh, it is something that is just tattletelling on you. You are on your phone an average of three to five hours a day. That's the average American. You're golfing. You're partying. You're hanging out. You're climbing. You don't have time to worship once a week for an hour and a half. You don't have time to spend time with community once a week in your life. The problem is that you don't have time. The problem is you keep telling yourself you don't have time. You have time. You're not making time. But it feels better to say I don't have time because you feel you don't want to face the confrontation of the truth, which is I don't care about God enough in that way. This is more important. And the lie that you, we keep living is, but once I have more time, then I'll make space for that. You're never going to have more time. Life gets busier. And busier. And it gets really hard as it gets busier. So you know why? What happens next? When it gets so hard, you know what you begin to think, the new idea? It's so hard now. I am so drained. I don't have God in my life. I need to travel now. I just need a vacation. I need a break. And that's a new goal for a lot of us in life. I hear people say, you know what my goal in life is? I want to visit five continents. Five different continents. That's my goal in life. That's your goal in life? For a lot of us, like, that sounds wonderful though, right? And again, I'm not bashing traveling. It is wonderful. Traveling and vacationing is great. Here's the problem. How many times do you travel a year? Two to three times? What happens all those other days you don't travel? Bad. It's just life. Life is hard. Life is a drag. But I'm doing this all for that vacation. I'm doing it all for that moment of relief. That's the one thing I am looking forward to. And the question is, as much as everyone thinks that's normal, is that leading to life or is that leading to death for you? Alan Noble, he writes in this book, You Are Not Your Own. He describes just so beautifully the modern description of how we go about life. He says, quote, the mode that best describes our day-to-day experience today is survival. Ask an honest parent, student, or employee 
and they'll tell you that their goal for the day is to survive, to get through the day, to make it through. Existence is a thing to be tolerated. Time is a burden to be carried. And while there are moments of joy, nobody seems to be actually flourishing, except on Instagram, which only makes us feel worse. Is this you? Is this your life? Are there ideas you're holding on to that's leading to not real life for you, that's leading to a place you don't really want to be? And here's the problem. Because it's so normal, we feel trapped. We feel trapped in this cycle of what do I do? And this is why Jesus came into the world. This is why Jesus came. When Jesus came into the world, he came with a specific mission to set us free. That leads to the last point of the fight. You know, when Jesus came in the first century, he came, everyone thinking he's the Messiah. And they were looking forward to the Messiah because they all were under Roman rule. It was a regime over them. And so they expected the Messiah to do something about that situation, to free them from Roman rule. So what did they expect Jesus to bring? I give you sword. Here's a sword. Here's a battle. Go to battle. Here's some weapons. You can fight Rome. Or I bring you an army. Let's go together. I bring you horses, cavalry. Let's go charge. I have here to free you the tyranny of Rome. And yet, when Jesus came, even though that was the expectation, what did he say? In John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, this is what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus knows our main opposition. It's not Rome. It is not tyrants. It's not ISIS, it's not left-wing liberals, it's not right-wing conservatives, it's not poverty, it's not disease, it's not even the demons possessing and attacking us. The main thing Jesus sees that's oppressing us, that is attacking us, are lies, and Jesus wants to free us of that with the truth. This is why Jesus came into the world. What is one fundamental truth that Jesus wants us to know? Who do you belong to? Who do you ultimately belong to? In the ancient world, you belong to your family, to your tribe. You must live for them. You must live out their values. You must live out their benefits. Sounds nice, sounds honorable, leads to oppression. It leads to a lot of oppression. In the modern world, forget that. You live for yourself. Live for you, your goals. Sounds nice. And even though it's not oppression, you know what leads to? Depression. That's why the modern West is so depressed. We don't know what it means to live for ourselves. That's why Jesus says, is, those are the mental maps you used to have. Let me give you a new mental map. You belong to me. You were made for Jesus. You were made to live for him. And discipleship, repentance, is you are giving your mental map and you're trading it for a new map where your destination is a life with Jesus. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question to ask is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The Christians answered that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus came. The first truth he wants us to know is who do you belong to? And not only who do you belong to, but that Jesus, because he came down, he belongs to you too. The gospel tells us through his death 
He, de- he died the death that we deserved for our sins. And now we are accepted in God. And through his giving of the Holy Spirit, you are invited to now share life, not just life with him, but life abundantly. You know, personally, I'm getting pretty old, at least for our church, I'm getting kind of old. And I've, I've experienced those different stages of hedonism where I was kind of just doing what I want, uh, work and career, making it the center, center of my life, uh, being busy and just, I'm just too busy for everything, traveling, vacation, that's the goal. And I still, I'm tempted with that. I still struggle with that. And nothing seems wrong with that because everyone's doing it. But I also know where that leads. It leads to anxiousness, emptiness, depression. And I think when the devil sees me doing that, he loves it. Because it's making me not care about Jesus, not needing Jesus. Jesus is not part of my life, but he's not central to my life. And that's what it leads to. And I know, though, the more I know the truth, which is that Jesus Christ, through him, he gives you the life that you've been searching for your whole entire life. And I've tasted and seen that. And when you tasted and seen that, the devil's goal is to make you not taste that anymore. But when we get closer to the truth and experience who Jesus is, life becomes fuller. Life becomes meaningful. Life becomes what Jesus says. It's abundant. And so to conclude, let me just bring it down to this. All of us, again, are believing in ideas. Some are true. Some are lies. But all those ideas have zero power over you until you start believing it. When you believe it, then it has power over you. And you hear it every day. It's not until you internalize that truth or lie that it actually affects you. And our goal at this church is we want to be a church that does not just preach truth, that does not know truth, but we are internalizing the truth of Jesus deep in our hearts so that it goes against the lies of the devil that we hear every day. So how do we do this? Come back next week. We're going to talk about that more, of how we can do this. But today, can I just leave us with two things? With two things. Number one, this week, would you pay attention? And would you watch out for the devil's attacks? And remember, we do that by paying attention to lies. Where is the devil lying to you? Where are the lies in your life? What's cause, And you can identify the lies, but what's causing you to draw away from God? What's causing chaos in your life and disorder? You can bet when you identify it, there's probably some lies that are going on there. Are you paying attention to that? Are you watching it? And the second thing is, together as a church, after I pray, we're going to declare a fundamental truth together, the first and most important fundamental truth, which is we belong to Jesus, and we'll practice that by taking the Lord's Supper. So would you join me in prayer, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.